Welcome to the Faster Podcast by Flow Cycling, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything that makes you faster on your bike. This is season one, episode five, and today we have Matthew Weatherly-White and Jeff Hunt, the owners of RestWise, joining us on the show. RestWise helps you monitor your recovery by using their patent-pending solution to answer the question that plagues every athlete, and by training too hard or not hard enough. Listen to this episode to learn how to optimize your recovery and become a faster cyclist. Hey, this is Chris with Flow. When we're not producing this podcast, our team at Flow is designing some of the fastest carbon fiber bicycle wheels in the world. As a thank you for being a listener of our podcast, Faster by Flow, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase of wheels at flowcycling.com. Head over to our website and pick up a set of wheels to make you faster at your next race or ride. Simply use coupon code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, in all uppercase letters when checking out to get 20% off your order. Thanks again for listening to Faster. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, so Jeff and Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> doing just great. Perfect, perfect. Uh, where are you guys joining us from? So this is Jeff. I'm in Concord, Massachusetts. All right, and Matthew? Uh, and I'm in the, the booming city of Boise, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually driven through there, so I, yes. uh, I know the sound. A lot cool. of people have driven through. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, for sure. Um, I first heard of you guys, gosh, back in 2011. I was working with Matt Dixon and William Pettis, Dr. William Pettis. And I remember getting talking with Matt about training and he said, you guys have got to, you got to check out this really cool new thing called RestWise. And that led to an email with you, Matthew. And as we were putting this podcast together, we were wanted to cover recovery. And um, I, I went through my emails and gosh, it was six or seven years ago since we last spoke, but I reached out and you guys are still going strong. So uh, we now have you on the show. Well, thank you for inviting us. It's a yeah. it's it's a pleasure to to be here for sure. Cool, cool, cool. So, um, the reason we have you on the show is, you know, we've done a lot of work or, or episodes already on training and pushing ourselves as athletes and trying to get the best physical adaptation that we can. And uh, the problem in getting a physical adaptation is you have to push yourself very, very hard. But what happens is if you push yourself too hard too often. Um, you can enter, you can start to overreach. You push your body too hard. And if you enter a stage of overreaching too often, then you can become overtrained. So there's this very fine line between pushing just hard enough and not, not push or and pushing too hard. So how about we start with you guys just uh, having having you guys explain the difference between overreaching and overtraining and what those both mean. Ha, <laughs> right into the heart of it. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, Jeff, do you want me to sort of take a first stab at this? And you can... Sure, you go, uh, you start, I'll jump in if I cool. feel like I should. Will do. Well, you, you really nailed it with the term adaptation, right? I mean, we are carbon-based life forms that are functionally adaptation machines, and we will adapt to any sort of stress. 
The trick is understanding that as performance-oriented athletes, we are seeking a very narrow set of adaptations that will allow us to perform better in our chosen activity. Now, to sort of use a, a really extreme example, a gymnast is going to want to experience a very different set of adaptations than a, a power lifter is going to want, right? Same life form, same you know, carbon-based life form, but very different adaptations. And so the training stresses required to trigger those adaptations that will allow those two different athletes to perform in their sports are going to be really, really different. That's a pretty obvious statement. Um, but what it gets you to is this notion of adaptation. And the thing is, you will continue to adapt even in an overtrained state. It's just that you will be adapting non-functionally, i.e. your body will be um, adapting to training stresses or global stresses that don't necessarily help you perform well in your sport. Okay. So overreaching, as you pointed out, is, is a prerequisite to triggering adaptations. And the, the challenge is that the fitter you get, the more workload is required to get your body into a state of overreaching. Hmm. And yet the closer you will be to that state of overtraining. Now, now overtraining is a, is a pretty tough state to really get into. We like to think of it as a state of under recovery rather than overtraining. Maybe that's a little bit too nuanced, but that's how we think about it. And the reason we do that is because overtraining is a scientific diagnosis. It's really hard to get there. Now, there are certainly athletes who are so disciplined and so focused that they can put themselves totally in the tank in a state of overtraining. But most of the athletes that we see who have gone past overreaching are really in a state of chronic under recovery. Okay. Um, so does that, does that sort of help yeah, tease absolutely. that difference apart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've met some athletes who I think have hit in that stage. And once they get there, it's almost, it's a very, very tough place to get out of. Some of them spend years in it and they, they never seem to be able to kind of bounce back from what I've heard. So can you, can you help us understand what happens to us physiologically when we're in uh, an under-recovered state? Yeah, so it depends a little bit on what... Um, created the conditions for that under recovery state. So very, very simplistically, um, as an athlete, we you know we embrace a given training protocol. We know that at times in that protocol, we will be tired, we will be fatigued, we will be overreached, and then we recover from that. And the body's natural compensatory processes allow us to become stronger, fitter, faster, etc. Um, so what happens in that sort of chronic, you know, chronic under-recovered or chronic non-functional adaptation state is that all the things that we want to have happen just stop happening, right? We, we are, um, you know, our VO2 max flatlines or sometimes drops, our capacity for microcellular damage recovery in, in intramuscular tears that just stops, re it stops right. happening, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist and I probably should have started this off by saying, you know, Jeff and I are students of performance, and we are both endurance athletes ourselves, but neither of us are sports scientists. So if there are any sports scientists listening to this podcast, <laughs> cut us some slack. Like everything we say has come from other people and there's a high probability that we're getting it a little bit wrong. Um, but having said that, we've also talked with, I don't even know how many now, Jeff, you know, probably hundreds of elite level coaches and more than that elite level athletes. So yep. I would say that we know what we're talking about, even if we're not scientists and can't get it like spot on perfect deep science um, in terms of our answer. So having said that, um, the way, the way to think about it is that you go from a state of functional adaptation 
i.e. adapting to the posit, you know, adapting positively to the training demands to trigger the performance that you seek, to mm-hmm. non-functional adaptation, where your body stops adapting positively and starts adapting negatively, so you stop being able to perform at an increasingly high level. Huh. Very interesting. That's really, really cool. Okay, so are there any any warning signs for athletes that they may be getting to this under recovered state? That's why we built RestWise. (laughs) (laughs) And we're definitely going to cover that. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, there are. Uh, Jeff, you want to to take this one? Yeah, I mean, just uh, there are a whole series of um, changes that take place in the, in the body, some of which are, you know, you need to measure by doing invasive testing, you know, analyzing blood and hormone levels and those sort of things. But, um, you know, this has been researched for decades and a lot of those, um, you know, studies have been correlated to really simple symptoms that you um, undergo when you start approaching this over overtrained state. And they can be as simple as, you know, an elevated heart rate in the morning, um, you know, impaired mus- muscular strength. Um, mm-hmm. A whole, you know, there's a whole series of, you know, probably 20 different, um, really simple things that you can check that uh, that are shown to correlate with some of the more invasive testing that show that people are approaching. Nice. Over wow. state. So let's say that an athlete gets to an under recovered slash overtrained state. How long does it take, or is it, or is it, does it vary with how long it takes that athlete to recover from that place? I'd say it totally varies. Okay. Um, and, and 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 I think that the reason it varies is more behavioral than physiological. And I say that because in order to get to an under-recovered or quasi-overtrained state requires a fair amount of discipline. Like you have to go out and get your nose bloody in training when you feel pretty bad, like yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that mindset that tells the athlete to ignore the signs and symptoms of, of under-recovery and to just continue to push through is the same mindset that will make it very difficult for them to pull to put the foot off of the gas pedal for long enough to really recover. And I think that's where it gets really tricky with athletes is that same mindset that got them to perform well in the first place, i.e. the capacity to go hard, is the exact same mindset that eventually can really undermine their performance. Yeah. Is there a, is there a prescribed, you know, plan to get them out of this under-recovered state? Well, active rest. I mean, that's a really vague answer. So, um, just like exactly what you know, type A athletes want to hear is more and more rest, right? More rest. Okay. <laughs> um, from what I understand as well, the fitter we get, the closer we get to that line of of of, of crossing that under recovered line or overtrained line. Is is that true? Yes. Okay, and can you explain? Yes, why? and yes, and no, right? Because. Mm. Um, I like to think of it as fragile. Okay. When you're a finely trained athlete, you're in a state of constant fragility. Yep. And yet you have such enormous capacity for workload that it takes a lot to get you over that line, right? It does right. take a lot. So yes, you are much closer and it's, it's, it's weirdly like harder to do because yeah. the amount of workload required, it can, can be really significant. Yeah. And and so one of the stresses we see in when we train are, you know, the stresses of training itself, but you have things like building a house, raising kids, finances, um, you know, loss of a loved one, anything like that. All of those add to the stress level of the body and the cortisol level, you know, and then we've heard that you're, you know, from your body's 
stance, it doesn't know the difference between stresses. Is that true? And is, is there a way that a measure that an athlete can measure their overall stress? Yes. Um, from, from an endocrinological perspective, the body doesn't really recognize differences in stress, you know, yeah. very, very simplistically it's that testosterone to cortisol ratio that mm -hmm. sort of really helps, um, quantify your body's global tr stress state. And you know, right. Je Je Jeff and I have talked a lot about the fight or flight response. And I think, you know, sometimes you can be in a car driving down the freeway, somebody cuts you off and your reaction is you want to like, you know, <laughs> jump out of the car, run up there and throttle the guy. And sometimes somebody cuts you off and you're just like, oh God, the guy must be having a tough day. Like that is a great example yeah. of response <laughs> to a stress impulse. Very, very different, right? Very right. different responses. Um, I don't know, Jeff. What, like, what would you what would you say about that? Yeah, so I, I'm come at it from a slightly different angle, and and would say, I mean, if the question is, what do you do to measure overall stress? There's there really isn't any good single way to measure stress. What you can measure is the you know the symptoms of stress. So other things that are happening, you know, as Matthew just alluded to, two different ways he would react to the same situation. You know, if uh, if your mood starts failing, if you start feeling depressed, and you know those are indications of stress. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's not a great way to measure it directly. I would say the closest thing that a uh, single tool that you could use would be heart rate variability. Um, but you know, it's, wow. again, you're uh, you're much better off sort of looking at the yeah you know, the various factors which are in indicators of excessive stress. And, and when you say stress. when you say heart rate variability, what what do you mean by that? So heart rate variability is a measure of essentially the amount of variation in the um, in the time between individual heart rates or heartbeats. So okay. you know, as your when your heart is beating, it it'll speed up, it'll slow down, and that balance is determined by competing signals from the sympathetic and parasympathetic parts of the okay. central nervous system. Yep. And when you're in, uh, you know, when you're and stress is under control and you know then those are you know those sort of have a push and pull and you'll see your heart rate accelerate for a few beats um decelerate for a few beats so you know whereas you're doing you may be doing 60 beats in a minute um it won't be exactly a second between each beat right um okay. it may okay. be 1.2 and then it may be 0.8 um so that is heart rate variability and huh. if there's a high variability, it's an indicator that those, you know, those the push and pull is acting the way it should. Um, if it's a low variability, it shows that the central nervous system is fatigued, and um, you're not getting as so much of that change. It's more wow. of a, you know, it gets closer <laughs> to the one beat per second. That's cool. Okay, so uh, Dr. Alan Lim, who is Team Radio Shack's uh, chief physiologist, there's he was quoted saying that very few of these kind of lucky or elite athletes have some sort of innate sense to know where their overtraining line is. And for the rest of us who aren't so lucky um, and don't have this natural abil ability to kind of rate our own recovery, um, we need an alternative. And that's really where RestWise comes in. So, you know, the previous question where you're answering that there's all of these different stress markers and what what is total stress and how does it relate to the body um, that really is where I saw when I used RestWise, how it came in and played well together. So let's start talking about the product that you guys have. So start just by giving us a brief overview of RestWise and what it is. 
Have at it, Jeff. All right. So RestWise is it's a piece of software. Um, and essentially what it is is a questionnaire which athletes complete every day, which asks a series of questions related to symptoms of recovery. So effectively, it's a checklist of symptoms that of overtraining. Um, so pre- from practical perspective, what when you're using it, you wake up, you enter, you answer the dozen questions, submit it. It comes, it runs all the information um, through an algorithm, which takes into account your personal baseline that you've built over you know, weeks of using RestWise, and returns a recovery score, which tells you on a scale of you know one to a hundred um, how ready you are to absorb work, how recovered you are, and ready you are to train hard. Interesting. Um, in terms of the 12 markers, we chose them to be as simple as possible to enter. You know, when you asked about the symptoms of, of under recovery earlier, I mentioned heart rate. Now, that's something super simple in the morning. You put your, you know, there's a phone app that you can put your finger on. It'll tell you your heart rate. Um, the other example I gave was decreased muscle strength. You know, it's not as easy to do a, do a max bench press in, in the morning. So we chose a series of about a dozen um, of these of these questions that can be answered in a total of less than a minute that, you know, when taken together and when analyzed relative to the other answers and your baselines, it gives you a very accurate single number. Okay. Very, very, very cool. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, so now that we've, we've kind of talked about the basics of it and, and during the intro, we talked a lot about these markers. So I want to get a little bit more into the specific markers and let's, some of the stuff that you guys monitor, we're going to cover a lot of those today, but we'll start with heart rate. So, um, an elevated heart rate is something that can mean you are overtraining. So why does our resting heart rate become elevated when we are getting into this overtrained or under-recovered state? Why does it do it? Like physiologically, why does it do physiologically, it? Physiologically, yeah. Yep. I don't actually know. Do you, Jeff? I mean, scientifically? Well, not, not scientifically, but it's, I mean, sort of on a <laughs> simplistic level, the... Uh, the yeah your your body is is under stress um it's getting in you know strong signal from the sympathetic side of the nervous system to um to sort of remain on on high alert um and you know so one of the one of the indicators of under recovery is this uh you know this inability to or this lack of return to kind of stasis between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So okay. the sympathetic system is over reacting, then it'll lead to an elevated heart rate. Okay. So an elevated heart rate doesn't always mean that we're overtrained either. So no. are there any other things that could contribute to an elevated resting heart rate? Um, and does an elevated resting heart rate always mean that we're in this under-recovered or overtrained state? So... Uh, I'll jump on that one just for a second. So um, you've actually asked two parallel questions there. I'm not sure you realize that you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first one is no, it doesn't. Um, or maybe va- maybe ask three questions. The first one is no, it doesn't necessarily mean you're overtrained. And there are a number of factors. You could have a bad dream before you you woke up, not remember the dream, and have an incrementally elevated heart rate. You could be slightly dehydrated. You could be worried about paying your, your kids' orthodonture bills. I mean, there's a bunch of things that could affect your resting heart rate upon waking. Okay. Um, and that's why, and this is the other question, that's why we don't rely on just one marker. Okay. Okay. Right? So I mean, if, that, if we have an elevated heart rate 
RestWise doesn't look at that and go, oh, you have an elevated, elevated heart rate because of XYZ. It's looking at more of all of the options together Correct. and not singling each one out. Correct. And that's uh, why Jeff talked about a scoring algorithm that looks for deviations from your baseline which you accumulate over time. And you know, when we first built the tool, we thought, hey, you know, maybe there's a way to do some cross-correlation analysis where if, you know, if questions one, five, and nine are all elevated, that, that, that represents a higher probability of under-recovery than if two, five, and six are elevated. And we have not yet been able to sort of sort that out. But you get okay. this sort of intellectual architecture behind it, right? Yeah. In, in the presence of one marker, there's, we're not going to say, hey, you know, you're way over, got to, got to, got to take back off. Um, yeah. But if you've got four or five or six elevated, even if they're only elevated by a little bit, then there's a very high probability that you are stepping into a zone of potential under-recovery. And that's why from an early warning system perspective, a tool like RestWise or RestWise can be super helpful because even if your heart rate is only two or three beats above normal in the company of delayed onset muscle soreness or whatever, all the other ones we're going to talk about, like that could be a flashing red light or it could just be sort of a gently blinking yellow one. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Let's talk about uh, body mass. A rapid boss uh, loss of body mass compromises the body's ability to repair itself during training. Um, however, most of us who are um, lose weight, like we lose weight as, as a result of training. And so how does RestWise look at body weight loss? Do they look at it as a long-term thing or is it more of an acute body mass marker, like like hydration or something like that? It's primarily the way that RestWise analyzes is primarily an indication of hydration. So we are looking at an acute um, day-to-day drop in, in okay. body mass relative to the baseline. Okay. Do you have any tips for athletes who are currently overweight uh, or getting down to their race weight, race weight? And is it, you know, can you lose fat too quickly? Does that put you at a risk of overtraining? How does that work? Hmm. Huh. <laughs> that, oh man, you just opened up Pandora's box. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that only because, you know, those of us who are, let's be generous with ourselves and say we're sort of middle-aged athletes or aging athletes. I mean, I remember, you know, when I first became a, a serious endurance athlete, carbohydrates were everything. And I remember the phrase, carbohydrates are the furnace in which fats are burned. Um, and we were all eating, you know, 80 to 90% of our diets were carbohydrates. And, you know, yeah, fast forward that. 30 years and, you know, carbohydrates are the devil. Um, yep. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of inconsistency in science that makes me very skeptical about leaning on, you know, weight loss, appetite, and yet there's no doubt that an accelerated weight loss puts your body into a catabolic state. And a catabolic state is by definition suboptimal for performance. Can you, recovery. for our people, and me included, catabolic state, could you, could you explain what that means? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sorry. So, so there's two primary states the body's in, anabolic and catabolic. Anabolic you know, is building. Catabolic is self-eating, basically. It's not cannibalizing it, but yeah. it's not too far off, right? That doesn't yeah. sound good. No. And so if you're in a catabolic state where you are losing weight or shrinking muscle mass, you're doing that, you know, you might be doing that intentionally. You know, you yeah. might simply be a bodybuilder who now wants to become a triathlete. And so you have to enter a state of, you know, catabolic behavior so as to reduce your body mass, right? Then that would be a positive effect of 
uh, of training, right? Yeah. Um, but I think what really concerned about is over is you know, the overtraining and losing it too quickly. And I would just say, very, very broadly speaking, like catabolic behavior is a direct negative on performance. <laughs> you can obscure it a little bit because most of the sports that we do involve some strength to weight ratio, right? Yep. I mean, if you're a cyclist and you lose a bunch of weight, you're going to be going uphill faster, even if you might not be as strong. I mean, Bradley Wiggins in his tour where he got fourth that first year and he just looked like a freaking skeleton. It was like, well, that worked for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm, Jeff, might, you might want to take this in, sli in a slightly different direction, but I think that broadly speaking, a pound a week is sort of the guidelines that we have yeah. seen as being totally safe, totally secure, like no risk of compromising your body's capacity for recovery. Yep. I think you could probably push on that a little bit in the off season without worrying too much about it. But I think, you know, people who do crash diets to lose weight in advance of a, of a competition, like they're just fooling themselves. Yeah. That's a bad strategy. Only other thing I'd add to that is that if you're paying attention to the other indicators, you know, if you're not able to keep up with the demands of the workload that you're putting on yourself, then it's a pretty good indicator that you're not getting, you know, enough nutrition to nutrition. be able to sustain it. Since, yeah. since we're talking about uh, losing weight, um, let's talk about appetite for a minute. What can our appetite tell us about recovery? So, so that's one of the ones that's contra. It's a sort of a contraindicator. You know, a normal healthy appetite would mean after a heavy workload, your appetite would be high. And so we actually ask the inverse. You know, is it a we? we if your appetite is suppressed. That's usually an indicator that you are stepping into an under-recovered state. Is that the way really? you'd answer that one, Jeff? Yeah, I would actually, though, I would draw from my own experience using RestWise, which is that I have almost never gotten to the point where my appetite is less than normal. And I've, you know, in conversations with people, that's generally the feedback I've gotten. So if you think of RestWise as a, as a checklist of you know, signs of under-recovery, I'd say that is one of the last ones that most people would hit. But so you're you saying... Let me let me get this straight. You're saying that if you're in an under recovered state, your appetite goes away. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Isn't that weird? But but um yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is that is totally weird. I think you know that I know if I have a hard workout, you know, or if I'm working out, you know, riding more, doing whatever in a in a particular day, my appetite goes through the roof. I mean, I get like very hungry. So, I mean, I guess I'm not under you know, under <laughs> overtrained, I guess that's not what the case. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what should happen. Yep. Yeah. Well, he yeah okay. <laughs> he, John rides a bike like once a year. So that's pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so super recovered. I get really, super recovered. <laughs> I get really hungry that one day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so our actually our next episode we're interviewing uh, a sleep specialist who focuses on sports performance and he is a sleep expert. But you guys cover sleep as well. So let's let's talk about some basics um, of sleep. So pretty much all athletes know the feeling of a restless night of sleep after a big race or a heavy training block. Can you give us some general guidelines on what you guys on, on just on sleep and maybe how many hours do we need? So I think most, you, uh, you scared sorry. us by saying that you're actually having a sleep expert on the next uh, yeah, totally. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the same thing. It's like, I, can, I don't want to go on record now. <laughs> no. So, I mean, just it's kind of like a teaser, I guess, for the next show. But just based on your experience with all the work that you've done with recovery, the athletes who you see who are successfully recovered, what, do, you, do you have any metrics on how many hours of sleep they're getting or needing to get to that state? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it does vary from individual to individual, but you know, I think that the yeah the guidance of of eight to eight and a half hours for a full re- recovery is yeah. uh, is pretty dead on. It's pretty much what we've seen for people who are in, who are in heavy training and are sustaining a high level of work. Okay, so aside from your typical restless night, I know I when I trained heavily, I was all I was awake all the time. Um, are there any other sleep symptoms that you guys have seen associated with uh, this under-recovered state? Yeah, I mean, one is uh, an ability to, not necessarily a restless night through the whole night, but you ability to fall asleep immediately, but then a few hours later, you sort of pop up and you're wide, you're wide awake. Yeah. Wow. Um, huh. Okay. And I think what's interesting about this is you can also get anxious about not sleeping enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is one of those really weird is like I remember talking with um, one of the scientists at UK Sport about sleep and, you know, they did this analysis around when human growth hormone was secreted. And what they found was, and I'm not sure I'm going to get the language all exactly right, but it, it'll be close enough. It was like 80% of your body's daily HGH secretion took place in the third NREM cycle of sleep. And so what they were thinking about doing was huh. developing a watch that would monitor your sleep patterns, you know, wearable device of some port that would monitor your sleep patterns and basically wake their athletes up after each cycle where the HGH was produced. So then they would go back to sleep. So they would get three, you know, two or three cycles of HGA production each night, basically artificially introducing elevated HGH conditions, which is, you know, as we know, what Lance and, and, and the, the guys were taking during the Lance era in the Tour de France, you know, HGH is a, is a pretty amazing recovery tool. <laughs> yeah. And if you can stimulate the body's natural production of HGH by managing your sleep cycles, well, then that's a natural way to accelerate recovery. And, you know, one of the things that we've said, I'm going I'm to take a tangent here for a second, okay. but one of the things that we've heard repeatedly from uh, sports federations is that the headline risk around getting popped for performance-enhancing drugs has put an increased emphasis on understanding the body's natural recovery mechanisms, supporting those and augmenting them to whatever extent possible within the rules. And so what we have really heard um, repeatedly is people are pushing the edges of recovery science to optimize performance rather than relying on a set of performance enhancing drugs to effectively do the same thing. And that to me is super fascinating. So you're technically doping yourself to the legal limit if you want to call it doping uh, with your bodies, and, yeah. with your body's, you know, natural recovery systems. Yeah. That's and sleep is medicine. I mean, sleep is amazing. Yep, All the really good things happen. So during I'll, sleep. Tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you this. I actually read this doctor's full book on sleep and you guys are pretty, pretty spot on your whole point about uh, people having sleep issues being mostly in their mind is actually a huge component. So, yeah. uh, 100% on that test. And if you're interested, listen to the next podcast episode <laughs> with the sleep doctor, and then you'll have better answers for the next one. <laughs> cool. Yeah. One of your other markers that you guys use is hydration, and you guys use a P chart, which is actually kind of kind of cool. Can you explain how the P chart works? I'm going to let Jeff talk about urine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, consistent with everything else that we do, we try to keep the scale super simple. It's you know, it's not a seven uh, seven shades of yellow P chart where you're holding up a strip next to a toilet bowl or anything <laughs> like that. It's uh, you know, it's essentially is your is it light or clear? Is it you know a little bit yellow or is it a dark yellow? 
And, you know, essentially you're just, you know, looking at either the stream or the, you know, the, you know, the pee once it's in, once it's in a bowl and make a, a metric or a, making a judgment across those three different options as to how, um, you know, how dark it is. Yeah. And I think that brings up a really great point because I've seen pee charts that have, you know, 10 gradations of color, which from a precision perspective is totally fascinating, but from a practical application perspective is sort of ridiculous. And I think that sits that that approach to recovery awareness sits at the very heart of Restwise, and that is let's make it simple, let's make it intuitive, let's make it accessible, yeah, and use a rel- sort of the lean data approach rather than the big data approach right. to tease out the body's recovery status. And yeah. rather than saying, "Hey, look," from from a precision perspective, it's X, and to say, "Hey, you know, basically, you're at risk of under recovery." Yep. Yeah, and I, as a past user, I can say that it's very simple to use. I mean, it's it's kind of I hate to use the word, but it's kind of idiot proof. Like it's just it's very simple stuff, and it it you can tell there's a lot that goes into it, but it it's really basic to use. So you guys did a, well, a good job with that. Yeah, thank you. So yeah. with a, from you know, if you look at hydration, I've always kind of thought of hydration as like, am I thirsty? If I'm not thirsty, then I'm I'm hydrated. What can you explain? how we know or what what is a state of knowing that we're actually hydrated or how would we know that we were dehydrated? So urine color is a great constant monitoring, but most people don't really monitor it all day long. Okay. But if you get in that habit of just sort of, you know, paying attention every time you go to the bathroom, just paying attention to your pee, that's a great repeat, you know, repeated cycle that you can, you can check out. So if you're supplementing a lot with vitamins, that can be distorting because a lot of those will get excreted. So sort of got a discount for that. Um, So thirst itself is not necessarily a marker of dehydration. It's just, I'm thirsty. Well, over the course of a day, it is a great one. Like if you're thirsty in the middle of the afternoon, then... Yeah, you probably, you know, you probably should be drinking more water. The the problem is that in exercise, you get that, you know, and I don't remember what it's called, but like in the first 10 or 15 minutes of exercise, you'll experience a really dry mouth. Yeah. That's not the same thing as thirsty. Yeah. That's like a physiological response to something. I don't remember what it is. And what I have read is that if you don't pay attention to that and you don't drink in that moment. Yeah. That actually is really helpful to your body's um, sort of moisture transport mechanisms, something like that. Huh. Um, I don't know, Jeff. How, how would you like? How would you reply? I mean, definitely during exercise, if you get actively thirsty, like parched, it's way too late by that time. Like, yeah, you can't recover from that. And the, I mean, those are some of the significant problems. Like, if you start a training session dehydrated, you're not really, you're not really able to to recover. It's the same. You look at the same thing in survival. It's like if you find some water and, you know, some people drink it all at one time, you're, you're better to drink like a few ounces in yes. every hour. You know, that's yeah. the way to keep yourself hydrated. Yeah. yeah. And although there is not an enormous amount of science on the incrementalism of overhydration, hyponatremia is a real problem. It's not a common problem because it's really hard to get there, but yeah. like that's dangerous. And so it's like, drink as much as you can, but don't threaten your life with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> we had a, a guy on the show earlier, a guy named uh, Daryl. And he owned a company named Shots, and we talked all about salt levels and sodium, and you know what you can do if you if you have an over concentration of salt or or under concentration of salt in your in your body, you know it's very similar to this hypo hypernatremia thing. So that's that's actually very cool. Yeah. Um, can you explain some of the effects dehydration can have on the body 
during the recovery state. So we know what it does during the the ride. You know, we, it can put us in sort of a crash state. But what about while we're trying to recover? I've certainly heard a lot about body cramps, you know, muscle cramps at yep. night as a function of dehydration. You know, you're going to bring, um, you're going to compromise the functionality of, of, you know, your filter organs. Um, your, your blood's going to be a little bit thicker. You know, I don't know how, how much of a concern that really is. I mean, I don't okay. think you're going to get like sludge cause you're a little bit thirsty. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Jeff, do you, have you talked with anybody about the specific physiological responses to dehydration recovery? Yeah. I was just going to add to what you were just saying, which is if the blood thickens even just you know, a little bit, um, you know, most of the mechanisms of recovery, whether it's, you know, extracting uh, lactic acid out of the muscles or, um, it are dependent on, you know, on flow of fluids and you know even if there's a small reduction in the available fluid to uh, you know, do that then yeah that sort of action at the capillary level is just not going to be as effective yeah huh. interesting all right let's talk a little bit about energy level um as athletes uh, we've all had those days where you just feel amazing and it seems like you could double your workout and then there's other days you go out there and you know it feels like you're you're turning square cranks. I, I remember as a swimmer, I used to say on those days, it felt like I was trying to swim through jello. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of sounds fun. <laughs> it does, but yeah. <laughs> it probably wouldn't go so well. Um, so what, what can you guys tell us, you know, basically about energy level and how it relates to our recovery process? So, you know, we, we, we found um, a sports scientist working at the University of Loughborough, which is the headquarters of UK Sport, which is the high-performance arm of the Great Britain Olympic effort. I bring him up only because he did a very similar tool to RestWise for a, um, for a soccer team in Europe. And they kept reducing the questions and kept reducing the questions, and they finally settled on one question, which was energy state. Now, there's a lot of noise in that, um, but this is, in many ways, I think this is, the most important marker and the more sophisticated you get at using RestWise, i.e. the more educated you become in terms of your recovery awareness, the more important energy level has. And yet even energy level can be highly misleading. Okay. We've all had those days where you go out on the bike, for example, and you just can't turn the cranks. And then 20 yep. minutes later, your legs open up and suddenly you feel great. So do you turn around in the first 10 minutes? Do you push through? And that's where I think RestWise really, really helps because it's like this independent, third-party voice that says to you in the morning, hey, you know, you're good today. And if you go out on your ride and you kind of feel like, crap, you, 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 can, you can continue with a fair degree of confidence. Conversely, yeah. you might get a really bad restway score and think, ah, I should probably just go out and take it easy. And you get on the bike and you feel pretty good. And so you th open the throttle and two days later, you feel flat as a pancake. And I think that's where RestWise really helps is to help you not necessarily tell you what to do, but helps you understand how energy level sits within the, the broader context of your global stress state. Jeff, would you, would you sort of modify that or add to that? Um, I was, would sort of take it in a slightly different direction, which is more sort of anecdotally our experience with people using RestWise as a tool. And it's just been really interesting to see the um, you know, knowing what Matthew just said about how absolutely important this question is, but just seeing how uncomfortable it makes some people because yeah. it's subjective. Yeah. But, you know, as, you know, as Matthew said, the more you use RustWise, the more you pay attention to, uh, and the more honest you become, um, about your self-assessment. Um, it's, it's in 
incredibly important, but uh, not something which when you first start using RestWise, you necessarily feel comfortable doing. I, I mean, I definitely feel like you're right. I mean, performance in a workout, I mean, it's a, it's a very important marker. And like you're saying, there's days where we feel great, but we have a terrible workout. And then there's days where we feel terrible, but we feel like we can, you know, but we actually end up having a good day. And I think what you're, you know, you're talking about is, is important, um, especially it's, during the workout. But, you know, it's a little bit like the difference between weather and climate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've never thought about that before, but like weather happens all, you know, it's different all the time. Climate is a big, much bigger state of affairs, right? And I think recovery awareness, state of recovery is a much more persistent state of existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yet the variability yeah. on a day-to-day workout basis can be can be really quite dramatic as we've all experienced. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um how do we tell the difference between having a good workout do or not having a good work? Like if it's fatigue based or if it's in our heads, if it's mental, you know, if we had a stressful day or a hard day, is there any way for us to indicate that with like a, from a performance perspective before you do it or to evaluate it after the workout either, or, you know, I mean, if you're on the bike and we're saying, you know, I mean, I know I've, I've had hard workouts myself where I'm in the middle of them and I'm like, you know, John, just, just dig in, you can do this. And, you know, sometimes if you're in the middle of a hard set of something, you're like, you're trying to find every single excuse in the book, why it would be good to postpone your workout to the next day. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've gone through that process, but I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'll just dig in and keep and going. It, it, that once a year ride, I mean, he's really got to celebrate So, I mean, I, I, th- I think I would only put my answer within the context of the training plan itself. And knowing when it is okay to push through a workout in order to um, catalyze that overreaching state yeah. versus knowing when not to, you have to know your training plan, right? Because you know, one of the things that we say a lot is that if we help athletes make one or two better decisions per month, that ripple effect through the course of one or two or three or 10 years could result in a huge performance difference over time. Right. You know, RestWise is not a tool to use to have a better race next week. Right. <laughs> RestWise is a tool to help optimize the relationship between training stress, global stress state, and recovery so that your body is in a relatively constant state of positive adaptation so that over time, the adaptations that you seek happen in your body and you get faster and stronger and lighter or whatever it is that you want to see. And so rarely does one decision in isolation determine the course of the next three or four months. But absolutely, in aggregate, incremental decisions over time determine whether or not you're going to be a podium finisher or pack fill. Yeah. So as in the context of climate versus weather, you're looking for a Mediterranean climate where you're kind of that 75 degrees and sunny all the time versus this, oh, it's freezing and then it's Canada weather where we grew up. It goes from 100 degrees (laughs) down to negative 40. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly right. And it just snowed in Rome. So (laughs) So Mediterranean climate for recovery. (laughs) Yeah. What cool. can you t- what can you tell us about mood and recovery? I mean, we're talking about psychology here. So, if we enter a workout or if we finish a workout and we feel great about it, versus us feeling like, "Oh, I don't want to do that," or "That was terrible," does that have anything to do with our recovery level? Jeff, huh. so yeah, it's an interesting question. We've never quite been asked it that way, but you know, certainly, <laughs> mood. You know, before you do a workout is a very good indicator of you know, what your hormonal balance is. Yeah. 
And, you know, I would guess that you could take that same concept and look and apply it to just what you were talking about, that if you just feel disappointed in yourself or slightly depressed about the results of your workout, that that's, you know, it's probably an indication of the same thing that maybe you didn't pick up before you went out the door or maybe you ignored it or. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. That makes, that makes total sense. Um, talking about training when sick, uh, that's something that we've, we've touched briefly on in the show before and we've heard of the neck check. So the neck check means if you have a head cold, you're safe to train. Uh, if you have anything below the neck, if you have chest congestion, you should stop training. Uh, I think that could be potentially a little bit misleading for type A people that are like us. Um, <laughs> what guidelines can you give us for training when you're sick? <laughs> so I'd say there's a big difference between training and exercise in this case. <laughs> you know, training or put differently, training and activity. Um, I think that that neck check is a really dangerous rule. Like I get it. I understand that. Um, you know, having a, having a stuffed nose, um, is not an indicator that you're going to get quite, you know, really sick. But right. if you go out and do minute on minute off times 20 at two beats below your lactate threshold with a cold, what's the probability that that's going to get driven down into your chest? I don't know. Yeah. I'd say it's better than zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so again, if you think about making incrementally better decisions over time, like why take that risk? Right. Like five months from now. Are you, is your body really going to know if on that day you didn't do your intervals? Now, on the flip side, I think that there is an enormous amount of, 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 um, ra there's a strong rationale behind the idea that you should remain active when sick. And I, I you're going to laugh about this, but when I was in college, um, I, you know, I, I was rowing lightweight crew, so I was always really hungry and probably disoriented a lot, but, um, <laughs> I developed this thesis around fever management. And I just said, you know what? If the fever is the body's natural response to something, then why am I trying to suppress it? Why don't I actually support it by letting my body get really, really hot? So every time I had a fever, I would bundle up in sweats and a hat and gloves, and I'd go for a three-mile super easy run and just gout sweat. <laughs> and I was pretty sure that that helped. And I've done that ever since. Now I do it inside on a bike. I just put on all my, you know, all warm weather gear and, or, you know, cold weather cycling gear and sit on a trainer and pedal my bike for 45 minutes. And I think it really, really helps. Well, just the other day I saw a tweet by a doctor who was reporting from the NHS or something like that. And he said, why are we suppressing the symptoms of fever when the fever is the body's natural response? Now, I don't think you should go out and do intervals on that. But, you know, <laughs> I don't necessarily think that laying in bed is the right answer either. Yeah, in like a in a cold bath to keep yourself, you know, to suppress the fever, like you're saying. That's, yeah. that's interesting. I've, I've never thought of it that way. Huh. Okay. That's crazy. So one, one quick aside, where did you row crew? Dartmouth. Dartmouth. Uh, I just read the book, uh, The Boys in the Boat, and I oh, was dude. completely fascinated by that book, and I am mad at myself that I didn't row after reading that book. <laughs> I should have rowed. <laughs> so I was raised, so my dad's English, and he rowed at Cambridge and on the English national team, and I was oh, raised wow. on stories about the magic of pocock shells yeah. and how in England, where they didn't have pocock shells, they were thought these would be like these mythical boats. Um, and he told me about the Berlin Olympic race when I started to row, I rode in Andover and then Dartmouth. And 
years later, I too read that book. I missed a plane because of that book. I was sitting in the, ga- in the <laughs> gate area and they moved the gate and I didn't hear them. And I totally missed everybody getting up, walking down the concourse to some other gate. And I'm just sitting there in silence and I look up like a half an hour later and there's nobody there. <laughs> well, yeah. wow. Dude, I, that is so easy to do with that book. I, if anyone listening, like, if you need a book or you just, it's such a good book. It's yeah. one of the best books I've ever read. It's yeah. just, and I, I knew nothing about rowing before listening to that book. And I was like, <laughs> I can't, it was awesome. Anyway, yeah. um, okay, back on topic. So we, we've really talked about a lot of metrics and, and RestWise looks at even more metrics than what we've talked about today. And wh- what you guys do is you basically combine all of these metrics and you put them together to give us a recovery score. Can you tell us a little bit about that recovery score and what range it lives in and what it means? So yeah, as we, uh, you know, we mentioned, it's a score from uh, 0 to 100. Um, you know, incremented in, in units of 10. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to really discuss it without talking about where that score fits in the context of what you're doing, what your training plan is. Um, but there's, you know, I would just sort of breaking down different interpretations of different levels. If you're at an 80 or above, you're pretty much ready to go out and work as hard as, you know, your plan tells you to, or you feel like doing that day. If you get into a sixty or a seventy, it uh, it's sort of open open to interpretation. You know, if you're if you're finishing up a recovery week and you're about to start another three week hard block of training, and you're only at a sixty or seventy, that may tell you you know take a couple more days off. Okay. Whereas if you're pushing yourself through you know four hard days because you want to um, you want to overreach and you or have a you know a period of rest coming up and then you're looking for super compensation two weeks later, you may look at that same 70 and say, you know what, I'm not pushing hard enough. I'm going to add another extra day of hard training. So essentially what it is, it's an objective way of telling you kind of how you're holding up, what the recovery state is and how you're holding up to the demands of the training and the uh, other stresses in your life. And then, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's up to you to put in the context of what you're trying to achieve, what your goals are and what your, uh, your training plan looks like. Very, Very cool. cool. Very cool. Okay. Uh, has RestWise contributed to any notable athletic achievements? <laughs> that was a softball it's your time, question. It's your time to oh, break. I don't know. Olympic medals, world championships, the New Zealand All Blacks were using it when they won the, the World Cup. I mean, <laughs> really? Well, I, th- I think the big. I, can we claim direct contribution to that? No. You know, Can I, I you think as a partial tool. contribution. Well, I think I so. Were they, were they using your system when those athletic achievements were reached? Yeah. Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, did but they, I think did they have I, the same success prior to using your system? Well, of course, they were all remarkable athletes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the honesty. <laughs> but but I think I think what it points to is something that I mentioned earlier, where um, a lot of these sports federations and professional teams are looking for the final frontier of performance. And I think broadly speaking, although the science continues to evolve, there is a sense that most of the science has been completed around training stress, right? We sort of understand it really, really well. And coaches come up with different training protocols, but the science around training stress is pretty stable at this point. Whereas the science around recovery, it's oh, it's all over the place. And so I think <laughs> there's a lot of room for there's a lot of headroom for performance by understanding, focusing on, and incorporating a recovery awareness into one's overall training plan. And I think that's where 
it gets super interesting for us because I mean, I remember when we launched, like we were speaking with these guys that were, you know, legendary sport training, you know, strength and conditioning coaches for some of the most famous sports teams in the world. And they were asking us about recovery and Jeff and I are like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> talk to our scientists. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Which just tells you how, how little has really been done in this whole world of optimizing the relationship or the ratio between training stress and recovery. And so in a sense, we sort of stepped into RestWise at a great time. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's, it's not been a great experience because most athletes don't care. Yeah, most well. athletes define themselves not by their performance, not by their constant state of positive adaptation, but by their capacity for workload. And as long as culturally we continue to define ourselves by our ability to sustain punishment, <laughs> then we're never really internalizing the lessons that we've been talking about for the last hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Very good point. Okay. So we ask all of our guests this this question, and it's on all of our podcasts. We have a, a watt point metric. So if, if our listeners listen to this episode, they get an idea of how many watts they'll gain by listening to this episode. Um, so we always use kind of a 300 watt FTP as the marker. So a couple questions about your FTP and your performance power wise from a recovery standpoint. So the first one is, let's say the athlete has a 300 watt FTP and they're starting race day in an in an under-trained, under-recovered state. So if they're recovered, they can hold that 300 watts or whatever they need to hold. If they're in an under-recovered state, how much of an impact can that have on the wattage that they're supposed to hold? Can you give me a range? <laughs> give me a range. Um, I would say 10% is a, is a, is an wow. outlier. Wow. It's a big okay. one. Yeah. So that's, that's a, th- wow. that, that's exactly what I was going to say, but I'd also ask the question, is it a one day race or a stage race? Oh yeah, because because uh, the effects are really cumulative. Yeah. Okay. So so one day we got a ten percent deficit on a on a stage race. Let's say a two or three day stage race. What, how much of a deficit can we see? Let me say it differently. I said on one day you might see as much as ten percent on a okay. stage race. I'd say you'd be almost guaranteed to experience that. Oh, wow. okay. that's amazing. Okay. So now, how about this? Let's look at it from a, a full season perspective. So if an athlete goes through a season fully recovered and they can get, let's say, a 10% improvement in their FTP over the course of a full season, if that athlete is now going through the season in an under-recovered state, how much of a, how much of a, how less of an improvement will they see or can they actually see a decrement in their FTP? Absolutely see a decrement. How much wow. of a decrement? Just... I mean, this is a totally unscientific response. Sure. But I have, I mean, I have seen athletes basically have to stop exercising because of this. Wow. So, you know, how much of a decrement is that? You know, people who were, you know, regional caliber athletes who could no longer cross country ski up a hill. Like they literally couldn't make it up the hill. <laughs> oh, wow. So, you know, that's a really extreme case. And I, I flag that only as a sort of a warning you know, sure. to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> But but I think you know I think you know <sighs> I'm really reluctant to put a number on it. Um, but I think a 10% performance decrement, if you were in a state of chronic non-functional adaptation, would absolutely be possible. Okay, that's crazy. And not you know, that it- many people get there though, right? And so it's 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 hard to quantify. I mean, I think the other so here here's another way to think about it. And what's the cost, right? Like sleeping is free. 
So cost per incremental benefit is like off the charts for sleep. Right. For, you know, rest-wise, it's similarly, it's a very inexpensive tool. Whereas if you want to buy, you know, a really aerodynamic road frame, it's thousands of dollars to save, what, 15 watts? Yeah. 10 watts? Yeah, no, you're And so maybe that's another way to think about it, right? There's... Well, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, yeah. As an investor, I was sort of thinking about that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting you bring that up because we've done quite a few of these episodes now and we always ask that question. And by far, you are the biggest range at this point. You have the biggest value of watt points that we've seen. So that just goes to show you how crucially important recovery is and yeah. you know, respecting your body and taking care of your body. It's this massive component to training and racing. So look, this we talked about so much today, and this has been extremely uh, insightful. So uh, recovery is kind of complicated. And, and trying to track all of these metrics and, and look at it and, and be subjective when you've got a wife, maybe, and kids and work and all these things. So the really cool thing about RestWise is that you guys take this very somewhat complicated thing and make it simple. So if our listeners are interested and they want to learn more about RestWise, how can they do that? Where do they go and how do they get started? So you can go to RestWise.com okay. and uh, yeah, I'm going to put my answer in the context of Matthew mentioned that we're both endurance athletes and we also throughout our careers have had um, episodes of pretty extreme overtraining. In both okay. our cases, it was decades ago. Um, and part of what motivated, there were two things that motivated us to start RestWise. One was Matthew was coaching somebody. He just needed to get a handle on <laughs> how hard to push her. Um, <laughs> and it was Rebecca Rush. So, you know, yeah, okay. she was capable of self-pushing for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the other was we thought it would just be really valuable to have a tool out here that would help people avoid the situation that we got into. And so one of the things that i would encourage is to take advantage of the free trial offer where you can use you can go to the restwise.com and start using the software use it for a month and you know if you you won't pay anything at that point if you don't want to pay after that that's totally fine but our uh, you know our hope is that by doing that for a month spending that long getting in the habit of paying attention to recovery and and uh you know every day going through and answering some some of the questions yeah. that make you more attuned to it that yeah. you will derive a lifelong benefit for as long as you're a, a competitive athlete sweet well guys wow. yeah, i honestly cool. can't thank you enough for coming on the show today this has been so great tons of good information and i something i think our user our listeners are really going to appreciate and uh thank you so much it's been a great episode yeah That's thanks guys fun. really appreciate it all right yeah. take care guys thank you guys it's been fun all, all right. right take care later bye hey this is chris with flow when we're not producing this podcast, our team at Flow is designing some of the fastest carbon fiber bicycle wheels in the world. As a thank you for being a listener of our podcast, Faster by Flow, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase of wheels at flowcycling.com. Head over to our website and pick up a set of wheels to make you faster at your next race or ride. Simply use coupon code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, in all uppercase letters when checking out to get 20% off your order. Thanks again for listening to Faster. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to listen to episode six, where we interview sleep specialist, Dr. Chris Winter, to learn how optimizing your sleep can help you become a faster cyclist. If you enjoyed the show, please help us by sharing our podcast and by leaving a rating or review. If you want to learn more about our company, Flow Cycling, please visit us online at flowcycling.com. That's F as in Frank, L-O-C-Y-C, 
L-I-N-G.com. You can also find us under Flow Cycling on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, ride safe.